0: Early in the 20th century, there was a young Welsh boy named Jones. In search for a better education, his parents sent him away to a boarding school far away from home. Years later, the boy, whose name was Martin, would reflect on his experience. This is what he wrote. I must add that I suffered at that time from a sickness which has remained with me all along life's path, and that was... Hereith, this is the Welsh word for longing or homesickness. Hereith is an awful thing, as also is the feeling of loneliness and being destitute and unhappy, which stems from it. It is difficult to define hereith, but let me excuse me. But to me, it means the consciousness of a person being out of his home area and that which is dear to him. My three years at boarding school were very unhappy, and that was only because of this longing. I had many companions there, and I enjoyed the lessons, but I remember as if it were yesterday, sitting at church on Sunday night, when I had come home from the weekend and suddenly being hit with the thought, this time tomorrow night I shall be in my lodgings at school. And all at one, I would be down in the depths of homesickness. Many of you, I'm sure, as I talk with you, you're not native Marylanders. You've traveled here from other parts of the world, or even if you are a native Marylander, you know what it feels like to be homesick, what it feels like to be lonely. I remember early on when my family and I moved to Maryland, uh, some eight, over eight years ago. In those early years, as we were faced with some unsurmountable difficulties and trials in our pastoral ministries, I was reminded often in those times of a sort of loneliness, a, a homesickness. And every time the trial would get tough, every time things would get hard, I would long for home. I would long to be back in the Midwest, to, to feel the sense. And and we would often travel there just to kind of put away those feelings of loneliness and those feelings of homesickness. And friends, every Christian faces those same feelings, which Jones called here. The feelings of homesickness and loneliness is in us. And friends, this is what Peter is writing. This is who Peter is writing to. He He's writing to Christians who feel homesick. He's writing to Christians who, who feel lonely, who feel as if they are they're exiles or sojourners. But these exiles have been chosen by God, Peter tells them, to endure suffering and difficulty through their journey home. Uh, he doesn't promise them that their homesickness will go away. He doesn't give them assurance that that pain of loneliness will somehow diminish, but rather hopes to encourage them, to encourage them in their travels, By reminding them about their God. By reminding them and instructing them how they're to live their lives throughout this this sojourning or this time of exile. Like Moses instructing the Israelites through their journey through the wilderness. So Peter is instructing God's people in their exile throughout life. Through their wilderness through this world that is not our own. As God's people, we feel the pressures of loneliness and homesickness. We long, and and you have heard that in the songs we've sung this morning, a sense of longing, a longing to be with God, a longing to be where God is, a longing to be in our eternal home. Well, friends, Christians have felt this for thousands of years, and so we feel it today. And we want to hear from Peter this morning. How do we manage this? How do we endure such difficulty and trial in this life? For God's glory. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. If you have a Pew Bible, there are Bibles provided for you in front of you. I would invite you to grab one of those and turn to page 1014. 1014, 1 Peter chapter 1. Last week we began a series where we will spend much of the fall and into December working our way through this letter. For a short break in October, for the anniversary of the Reformation, we will consider in October five sermons from the Reformation. But here we're in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verses 3 through 9 this morning. I pray that it would encourage you as you hear from God in His Word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead May be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So, what does Peter hope to accomplish through these words? I've summarized it in this way. Christians are to praise God for the inheritance that they have received from Him. And though they face various trials in life, they rejoice because their eternal souls are secured in Christ. I'll read that to you again. Christians are to praise God for the inheritance they have received from Him. And although they face various trials through life, they rejoice because their eternal souls are secured in Christ. And so we want to understand the purpose of this message, the purpose of this passage is to really give us reasons why Christians should praise God even though they were suffering. So this morning you may be suffering physically, emotionally, spiritually, you may know someone who is suffering physically. Emotionally, spiritually, and you often wonder why or even how Christians should praise God. Why is it that we should not blame God in those times, but rather praise God? Friends, that's what we want to think about in this passage this morning. And our passage really lays out for us two parts. So verses 3 through 5 is sort of one part, and then verses 6 through 9 is the second, second half. So, verse 6 is a really natural break between uh, verses 3 through 5. There, Peter lays out for us that we should praise God because your future salvation is certain. The certainty of our salvation in verses 3 through 5 is on display, and therefore we have hope because of the certainty of our salvation. And then in verses 6 through 9, Peter shifts to consider suffering and how we respond to suffering. And particularly here, that we should give praise to God, regardless of your current sufferings, salvation still lies ahead. So the fact that salvation is still ahead of us, that that it is still in view, we are to suffer well, and we are to do it with rejoicing. So those are really the two main points we want to consider this morning. That we are to praise God because your salvation is certain, and that we are to praise God because salvation still lies ahead. When we consider the Bible's conversation and often many verses that talk about salvation, uh, the Bible refers to salvation in different verb tenses. What that means is it refers to it in every single tense there is in the Greek language. It is in the past tense, it is in the present tense, and it is in the future tense. Uh, Salvation is often referred to in this way. We have been saved. Uh, That is a past tense. We we have been saved. And, And that's what we considered last week. Uh, When we considered the doctrine of election. In the doctrine of election we learned that we have been saved. From eternity past God has saved a people for his own possession. He has called, he has chosen a people whom he would redeem. And this is what the Bible means when it says that you have been saved. That is a past tense reality. But the Bible also says that we are being saved a progressive present sense, in the sense that we are being saved in our lives, that through the work of the Spirit, we are progressively over time being saved. And we often refer to this as sanctification, uh, that progressive change from one degree of glory to the next, where, where God is making me and you holy. But the Bible also speaks often about that we will be saved, that salvation is yet a future reality, that yes, it is a past tense reality, Yes, it is a present reality, but that salvation is often also, excuse me, a future reality. Uh, You and I sin every day. Every day we live our lives, we sin against God. Though we are still uh, children of God, though we are saved, uh, we still sin. Uh, Sin is latent in us. And so we recognize that we are not yet fully delivered from sin. We are not yet fully saved from sin. And so this morning, we want to think about the you will be saved aspect of salvation. That's what Peter is talking about, the future reality of salvation, that f- the, the future salvation is in fact certain. And, uh, and so we wonder, how do you have confidence that you will be saved? How do we have assurance that we'll be saved? How, how do we know that one day when we turn up into heaven, uh, that God will not cast us away? What assurances do we have that God has in fact Saved us well, here in the verse three verses here, Peter outlines for us several reasons why our future salvation is secured. In verse three, he begins with a formal doxology. He begins by writing to us, "Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. As Peter is thinking about salvation, as he 's thinking about god 's work of salvation, he can't help to begin with worship. Doxology, like we just uh, uh, sang together, is that, is that uh, Latin word that means worship. Uh, worship. We worship God. And blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter begins by worshiping God uh, because of what he has done in salvation. And friends, we have hope this morning uh, of the f- future certainty of salvation. Because God alone saves. Because God alone saves. Salvation is not by works. It's not by something we do. But it is by God's work alone. How can we have certainty in salvation? Well, look what Peter writes to us in verse 3. He says that salvation is according to His great mercy. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. That is, we have received salvation not according to our goodness, Not according to our obedience, not according to our awesomeness, but according to God's grace, to his mercy. It is according to his great mercy that God has caused us to be born again. And so we see the mercy of God is the foundation of our salvation. It isn't us coming to God. It isn't us showing off to God how how great we are, how good we can be. This is why in the doctrine of election we, we referred to last week, why we reject the view of foreknowledge that God looked into the, through the corridors of time and saw us responding to the gospel, and therefore He elected us. No, God's election is separate from the, the future decisions we would make. So we understand that it is according solely to the mercies of God. But notice what he says in verse 3, that He has caused us to be born again. Notice how one is born again. Uh, that language of new birth or being born again. Uh, we often hear in evangelical Christianity uh, a number of years ago, uh, born again Christian was how we often referred to ourselves. We were born again, uh, born again Christian. And what we were emphasizing there was the, the old doctrine of regeneration. Uh, that is that only regenerate people go to heaven. That is, there are two groups of people in the world. There are those who are regenerate and those who are unregenerate. Those who have been born again and those who have not. And so here God tells us that we have been born again. The Bible uses this language of new birth to really help us understand something about sin. See, sin has such an effect upon us that it has disabled us from worshiping God. Uh, So we're not drowning in sin. We're not broken because of sin. We are drowned. We are dead, Paul says, in our trespasses and sin. The Bible often refers to us as dead people. Our sin has done one thing. It It has killed us. And so the Bible often says that we worship only ourselves and other things and not God. So, we are unable because of our depravity to worship God. We are unable because of our depravity to go to God and to worship Him. And the doctrine of regeneration teaches us that God must do something, God must act. And, and the, the, the letter, excuse me, the Gospel of John. Is a letter or a book that that often helps us understand the doctrine of regeneration in in chapter 3, chapter 6, and chapter 10. I referred to it last week about how ability precedes belief. That you are unable to believe apart from the work of regeneration. That is, that you are unable to believe unless you are born again. As Peter writes here in verse 23 you have been born again. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. Or as John writes, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born again. And everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of Him. What that means is is that you cannot believe on Jesus until you have been born of God. And that's what Peter is writing to us about. He's writing to us that you have been born again. You have been born anew. You are a new creation in Christ. You, the old is gone. The new has come. And friends, this provides a foundational peace in our lives that salvation is not by us, but by the work of Christ. In, these first two ver- in this first verse, we see two things. That salvation is according to the mercy of God, and that it God has caused us to be born again. He doesn't say that you've caused it. He doesn't say that you've done it. And friends, you need to understand something about mercy that mercy would cease to be mercy if it was deserved. That would be a wage. If you receive something from God that you deserved, that would be called what we call a wage, right? We receive wages for things we deserve. We work hard and we receive a wage. But the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. That is what we deserve is death. But God has given us His mercy. And so His mercy is undeserving. It's not based on something we have done. It's not something that we would do. But God has extended grace to us in Christ. And so if you're not a Christian this morning, I wonder how you think about Christians you often consider Christians as hypocrites? They're hypocrites. You know, they, they talk a good game. They often talk about how they you need to be holy and how do you need to be good. But look at their lives. I mean, good night. They're never holy. They're out sinning just like the rest of us. They don't deserve the kindness of God. They are wicked. and, and Who are they to think that they are holier than thou? Friends, do you recognize that language of hypocrisy is, is half true? We don't deserve any of this. We don't deserve salvation. We don't deserve God's kindness in salvation. We are unworthy of God's mercy. We are unworthy of God's grace in our lives. But see, the difference in regenerate and unregenerate people is that God has caused them to be new. God has transformed them. God has changed them. And, and so in response to this great love God has for us in Christ, Christians have turned from their sins and followed Christ They have turned away from living life their own way and started living God's new way. They've begun to live this new life that God has for them. Not a life that they have chosen for themselves, but a life that God has chosen for them. Christianity is not a message about clean yourself up and then come to God, but a message about how God cleans us up through the doctrine of regeneration. God makes us new people. There is great comfort in that this morning. There is great hope that salvation rests not in our ability to be holy, but in God's ability to make us holy. And so our confidence this morning as Christians is that if we are in Christ, we have been born again. If we love God, then we have been born again. And if we love those created in the image of God, then we can be confident that we have been born again. And so we have hope, he says. He says we have been born again. Look at verse 3. He says that we have been born again with a purpose to a living hope. Uh, Peter here is outlining the purpose of our new birth. That we have hope because God preserves us. We have been born again to have hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have been born again for a particular purpose. To have a certainty of salvation. As certain as Christ is welcomed in heaven. So you are welcomed. The certainty of the resurrection of Christ is the certainty of our new birth. And so we have hope because God saves us. In verse 4, Peter says that we have been born again to, a, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Peter says we have hope and certainty of our future salvation because of our inheritance. Notice how Peter describes it. He doesn't tell us what it is, but he says what it is not. I hear Christians often speculating, what does Peter mean by inheritance? What does it mean that we have this inheritance? Well, Peter doesn't really say. He says what it isn't. He wants to be clear. This is what our inheritance is not. He says our inheritance is not perishable. It is imperishable. It cannot perish away. It can, it remains forever. We buy things all the time. We buy garments that perish, Right? Uh, We buy food that perishes. One of the most frustrated things in my life is buying food to see it waste away on my counter. It frustrates me because something of great value becomes uh, without value very quickly, right? You buy a banana that is nice and green. Within a few days it is disgusting looking. It is shriveled up and brown. Maybe that's how you like them. I don't know, but I don't... No, it's imperishable, right? Not perishable. It doesn't. It doesn't perish like our food wastes away. Our inheritance never dies. It never remains forever. He says. He goes on to say that it is undefiled. That is, it is not defiled. It is wholly unstained by sin. Our inheritance is perfect. How quickly we go through life and get stains. I know, for myself, it's. A good day to make it through the day to not get stains on my clothes. I know for my wife it's a good day when the kids don't get things all over their clothes. We find it a good day not to be defiled by the world around us by just the dirt and stain and be soiled. But oh friends, what an encouragement is to know that our eternal inheritance can never be defiled. No one can defile it. Not even us. As Jesus reminds us, In the Sermon on the Mount, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy or thieves break in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where where those things will not happen. But he also goes on in verse 4 to say that our inheritance is not only imperishable and undefiled, but it is unfading It will not fade. The glory of our inheritance does not fade. It remains as bright as the day we receive it. This is how Newton can sing. In 10,000 years, we'll be there. And we'll still be singing the same old song about the grace of God. Because our inheritance does not fade. Even our bodies reflect the reality of the fading world we live in. But our inheritance will not fade. It will remain forever. That is a certainty in our salvation. As Peter writes in chapter 5, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There is a sense of certainty in our inheritance because it is imperishable. Uh, It is undefiled and it is unfading. It will never go away what encouragement there is in that but not only that look at verse 4 again he says it is kept in heaven for you we considered last week that when you consider these type of words kept in heaven and you don't know who's doing the keeping you can often is implied that god is the one doing the keeping who is keeping our inheritance none other than god god is the one who preserves our inheritance he is the one who keeps it and if god is the one who keeps it then no one can take it no one can storm into heaven and steal it no one can rob god of it or as paul or as jesus reminds us in john 10 I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of My hand. You are as secure in the hand of Christ as you ever will be today. You don't need more faith. You don't need greater faith. You need to trust the certainty that your inheritance is kept in the hand of God. But more than that, we have hope because in verse 5, God guards our souls Peter goes on to say that we are who by God's power, that the who there is us, the the saved, the redeemed, the regenerate, those who have been born again, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. He says that we have hope because God guards our souls. Often we wrongly think that we are the keeper of our salvation. That if we will only be good boys and girls, then God will love us. But the reality is that God is the one who guards us. And it is through faith. It is through faith that we, like a bouncer guarding a nightclub, so God guards our souls. God God keeps the trash out. God keeps our souls. As Paul reminds us in Romans 8, for I am sure... Of this, That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you trust the certainty of these truths that Peter lays out? That we are to praise God because our salvation, though it is yet future, is certain. As certain as God's promises are, so it is certain. As Peter writes here, that we are be guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. Our salvation at the last time is ready. It is there as though it is today. Our salvation. That is why we can say that we have been saved. Because of the certainty. That is why we have hope this morning. Because of the certainty. Hope is not a wish. Like I wish Things would turn out well for my life. But it is a certainty that God will save me. There is no doubt in my mind. As I look to the cross of Christ, there I am assured that Christ loves me. Perhaps this morning you doubt God's love for you. You doubt your salvation. Perhaps you have no, you have no little uncertainty of your salvation because of unrepentant sin in your life. Perhaps this morning you doubt your salvation because you have unrepentant sin. That is sin that you're not willing to let go. Friends, the Bible does never, will never offer you assurance of salvation if you have unrepentant sin. Sin you're unwilling to let go. The Spirit of God will never comfort you to think everything's good if you are unwilling to let go of sin. Perhaps this morning you are repentant of sin, but yet you sense in your spirit a sense of loneliness, a sense of homesickness, a sense of, in which God has abandoned you. Friends, I pray you would take this opportunity just to trust anew in God's grace and the mercy of God greatly displayed through the resurrection of Christ. To see that our sins are not to lead us to despair, but Lord, that, that we would understand that we are to have encouragement this morning. So perhaps you doubt this morning. Your doubt's because you doubt the power of God to save. You think that your sins are too great for God to deal with. Your your sin your, is too strong for God to deal with. Maybe you encouraged here this morning that God can bring death to life. Where you were once dead, God has bring, brought life. Peter means to comfort the repentant sinner this morning. Not by ignoring your sin, not by distorting being cavalier about your sin, but by exposing it to the light of God's mercy and offering you assurance of new life. The certainty that your life is new in Christ. Brothers and sisters, may you have certainty today that if you have turned from your sin and trusted in Christ, you can have certainty. There is no doubt. There is no wonder whether or not this is true. Peter knows that it is true. He says that it is much, that God is the one who has done this. And he will be the one who completes it. So the certainty of our salvation gives us hope. Hope because of its future reality. We have confidence that even though we are presently suffering, God's purposes of salvation will be So this naturally leads us to our second sort of main point, which is that we are to praise God regardless of your current sufferings. We are to praise God regardless of your current sufferings because salvation still lies ahead of you. He puts salvation in the driver's seat. He puts it in the right there on the dashboard. He says, "Look, you can endure difficulty, you can endure suffering and pain and sorrow because your salvation is still at hand. You are yet to be saved." You know, often in life we can feel as if God does not love us when we suffer. If you have ever suffered in your life, whether it be through cancer, whether it be the loss of a child, whether it just be general ways, we often suffer. In those moments, we can often be tempted to think, you know, God doesn't love me. God has brought this in my life because He doesn't love me. But Peter is writing to Christians who, for all we can tell, were faithful. There wasn't any sin in their life, though they were sinners. There wasn't any unrepentant sin. They were trying to live faithfully in life, but they were being persecuted because of their faith. They were, being, they were suffering various kinds of trials, as, as he writes in verse 6. But yet, all the while, Peter doesn't tell them, hey look, just ignore the pain, just you know, suck it up and deal with it. You know, just try to you know, numb yourself to the pains of this world. You know, think about you know, the roses or something like that. Think about the good old days. No, he says, endure. Endure for the glory of God. And so let us consider sort of reasons why Christians are to rejoice amidst suffering. He lays out just really three reasons why in verses 6 through 9, which I hope are helpful to you this morning if you are enduring suffering or perhaps you see a brother and sister suffering. The first thing we see in verse 6 is that we suffer, or excuse me, that we rejoice in suffering because it's temporary. We rejoice in suffering because it's temporary. Now, what do you mean by temporary? Are you offering someone who's enduring terminal cancer that, oh, it's temporary, it's all good. Oh no, I would never be so callous. But look at what Peter says in verse 6. In this you rejoice. In what? In your salvation. In your salvation you rejoice, though now for a little while, he says in verse 6. Look at what he says. Though now for a little while. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. In these in these verses, Christians are comforted with these points: that, that look, it is temporary. We rejoice in suffering because it is it is momentary. It is it is temporary. Now, what do we mean? A little while, friends. There is no short of comfort in those words. A little while, is there? That when you're enduring pain and sorrow and suffering, when you hear it will only be a little while longer. Just a few more days. Just a few more years. The brevity of suffering offers comfort and peace. When we remember that that the sufferings in this world pale to comparison of the world to come, this is how Peter can say that you are suffering yet a little while. When we consider the greatness of eternity, all the sufferings of this world pale in comparison. And the shadows of suffering grow dim in our hearts. When we consider, even today, when we consider even today the many ways we have suffered in our lives, many of you have suffered excruciatingly in your life. Great pain and sorrow. Weeping for days and months. Pain that is almost unspeakable. That you have endured. Ridicule and persecution. We're reminded that that those sufferings once caused us do not have the same effect on us today. You're reminded that the, the sufferings, the pain that you endured 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, they don't have the same tug on your heart that they once did. As time has passed they have diminished though they have not gone away though they have not diminished completely time has transformed those sufferings haven't they Time has changed them Some of the ways that we suffered or or felt like we were suffering years ago we we don't even we kind of laugh at today like why was i so worried about that why was i so consumed with that why why did that cause me to To weep. There is joy knowing though the night of pain and suffering may tarry, though the night of pain may be long, there is the promise that a new day will come, that new mercies will come. And the new day is the day of Christ Jesus, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and his second coming. And when the morning light shall dawn and the mortal puts on immortality, oh, then we shall have endless joy. And that is where we are at. That is where our focus is at. We rejoice in suffering because it is temporary in nature, though now for a little while, if necessary. You have been grieved by various trials, Peter says. But Peter says we also rejoice in suffering in verse 7 because it proves our faith. Here is really the heart of Peter's argument concerning suffering and concerning how we rejoice in suffering. How is it that Christians can be happy all the time when they are suffering? How is it that when we read church history, and I just want to make a little side note here, uh, just do yourself a, a, a service and study church history. I think modern evangelicals suffer from some of the silly theology that we have because we don't read enough of church history. We kind of repeat the same mistakes over and over again. And studying church history can have an immense wealth of, of knowledge, but also encouragement. When we consider Ridley, who would burn at the stake because he wanted to translate the Bible into English. When we consider Latimer there burning with him. How can they rejoice in that? How can there be joy in that? How can they carry on a conversation while they're burning alive? Friends, I think it's because of verse 7. I think it really is because of verse 7. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ our Lord. We have joy in suffering not because we enjoy suffering, but because of what suffering produces. To be clear, we do not rejoice in pain. We're, we're, we're not like, woohoo, I'm excited to suffer. I'm excited to be in jail. I'm excited to, to, to have cancer. I mean, we are not saying that. We are saying that we rejoice that through those, God uses to prove something about our faith. Proof. That we are his children. The Bible is clear. Enduring faith is the only saving faith. You may know people in your life who made a decision for Christ, walked an aisle, and prayed a prayer. But boy, you haven't seen them around in a long time. They made a decision about Jesus, but they never believed in Jesus, they never trusted in Jesus. The Bible tells us that true, genuine, saving faith is enduring faith. It's persevering faith. And what Peter is saying here is that the trials of life, the sufferings of this world, the pain and suffering that we have in life does one great thing in us, it refines us. Our faith is refined, it is made clear. Like gold refined by fire, right? When when you take gold, Peter says, and you refine it, It becomes more pure. It becomes more gold and less impurity. And so suffering and trials, what it does is it purifies us. It makes some things clear, doesn't it? It clarifies who our God is. It clarifies where our trust lies. It it clarifies for us what our real hope is. In suffering, our faith is tested and it is proven to be true. Peter writes that the genuineness of your faith, that through trial your faith is proven to be genuine, to be true, to be real, just as real as gold is, so your faith is. But Sadly, as Americans, we delude ourselves. We really don't want anything to do with suffering. We don't talk about it. I was reminded of that recently in my own life. Friends, that's how we often deal with difficulty. We don't talk about it. We just shut it up inside. We never tell anybody that we're suffering. We never tell anybody that we're really weeping inwardly and we're in pain. Because we delude ourselves into thinking that suffering is not normal. As Americans, we numb ourselves through entertainment and through other means to just to make it through the world. We even shut ourselves out from the world so we don't have to think about our problems we want easy street. The problem is, easy street never comes. We can fake ourselves out and think that it's easy street, but the reality is, it's never an easy street in a fallen and broken world. And what Peter is see, saying here is that, that if you seek easy street, guarantee you, he says, you will never know your faith to be true and real, and you will always doubt your salvation. But if you know what pain is, and you you've seen your faith demonstrated through not not the faith that you know somehow like you know wow I'm amazing, but the faith that God has given us. That is that through faith we see that through pain we see our faith at work as as we are reminded in Hebrews about Moses who considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to a reward. Friends, there is great encouragement in that truth today. So I wonder this morning, do you rest in that grace of God? The final point that Peter makes here in verse 8 is this. Though you have not seen Him, you believe in Him. Excuse me, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. What Peter is saying is that you don't need the presence of Jesus in your life to endure. That's what he's saying. You do not need the physical Jesus in your life to endure. He says you've never seen Jesus. You have never seen Jesus. He's he's telling them, you've never seen Jesus. And they never had. These, These would have been mainly Gentile Christians that wouldn't have been around. This was decades later after Christ had already ascended to heaven. They had lived their lives. They had never seen Jesus. But yet they loved him. Though you do not now see Jesus, he says, though you do not now see Jesus, you believe in him and rejoice with joy. Friends, what you need in your life is faith to believe That Christ Jesus has brought you into these difficulties and trials. There's great encouragement in these words. And he concludes in verse 9 that the outcome of faith is the salvation of your souls. The certainty of salvation again rests as the centerpiece to our faith and trust in Christ. And so this morning I wonder, do you praise God in your life? Do you praise God that that the inheritance you have received from Him is certain because it is kept by Him? Do you believe that that is the inheritance you have? Do you believe that, that your future salvation is certain? Certain as God who saves is the certainty of our salvation It rests not in us but in Him, that we hope against hope and trust in the sovereign work of God in our lives? For His glory. As we feel the pain, the, the pull of homesickness and loneliness in this world, we have hope for another world. We hope for our eternal home. That regardless of the pain and suffering in this world, we recognize its temporary nature. And we rejoice because it proves our faith. demonstrates our faith in Christ and, and ultimately leads us to our eternal home. We endure because we know the end will come. We trust that when the light of this world grows dim, that the light of eternity will grow all the more brighter. We are not afraid of death, for Christ Jesus has defeated our last enemy. And our hope is in the resurrection of Christ. John in the pastor of Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, he was the pastor before the pastor of that church that you know of, which is... Charles Spurgeon. Uh, John Rippon was the pastor of the church before Spurgeon. And he wrote a hymn that we often sing. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie. My grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design. Thy dross to consume. And thy gold to refine. Do you trust this about Your present sufferings in this world? Will you trust the Lord's goodness and grace in your life, in your sufferings? Will you recognize that it is for God's purposes, for His glory, and for your eternal good? Will you trust in Him today? Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we again have heard from you in your word. These are your words. And our prayer this morning is that your words would not just skip over our hearts. They would transform us. Help us to have hope today in the certainty of our salvation. Let us not doubt. Be discouraged. Let us not push away the great sorrow and sufferings that we endure in this world. The pain is often unspeakable. Father, we have joy in our suffering. May we, as you say in your word, count it all joy when we face trials of various kinds because we know that the testing of our faith produces in us something great that it completes us and makes us whole and holy. And our prayer this morning, that though the winds and the waves may crash against us, that we can know that it is well with our sin. Amen. Let's stand and sing our final hymn.